0: Will China's massive Belt and Road Initiative prove the key to its becoming the world's most powerful nation, or is the whole thing running off the rails? Hi everybody, I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. It's been five years since the unveiling of China's ambitious Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. Since then, it's morphed from a collection of big infrastructure projects spanning some 70 countries in Asia, Europe, and Africa to include the Arctic, cyberspace, and even outer space. The brand now extends to healthcare, fashion shows, and art exhibits. Talk about mission creep! So is the BRI on track to create a huge sea, air, rail, and road network linking China to the world? Or is China in danger of losing control over it? Today we'll delve into the progress and pain of the BRI with my guest Jonathan Hillman. He is director of the Reconnecting Asia Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We'll learn what China hopes to achieve with the BRI commercially, politically, and strategically and we'll explore the issue of debt and how it's affecting the various projects and host countries. So, is the new Silk Road in danger of unraveling? Here's my conversation with Jonathan Hillman. Jonathan Hillman, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Jonathan, in the five years since the unveiling of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which you refer to as China's Belt and Roller Coaster, how has the initiative evolved and changed in any way?
1: It seems to change almost every week or every month, and it's been expanding and expanding and expanding. And so in the very early days, this was a concept that included an overland belt and somewhat confusingly a maritime road. And since it was announced in 2013, it's expanded to include an Arctic dimension, a cyberspace dimension, the digital Silk Road, and even an outer space dimension. And so we just see this expanding geographically. From the start, it was mostly the Eurasian supercontinent. Now it's Africa, Latin America, and beyond, and the Arctic, as I mentioned. And functionally, this is expanded to include not just large infrastructure projects, but also trade agreements, people-to-people exchanges, and policy coordination across a whole host of areas. So if there's one thing I, I can confidently say about this is that it's been expanding steadily, and that's been both a benefit for the Chinese, as well as a real management challenge.
0: Well, a classic mission creep, as you describe it. But I want to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But first, I just want to get a little bit more basic information. You refer to the uh, Belt and Road Initiative as a vast investment scheme cloaked in the rhetoric of cooperation. What is China's true intention, or what was China's true intention from the start in launching the Belt and Road Initiative?
1: So I think there are several motives driving this, and – One of the most basic ones is that China has very large state-owned enterprises that have built so much at home, they've essentially run out of things to build. And so they're eager to find new markets. And this is an avenue for them to do that. China has seven of the world's 10 largest construction companies, for example. So they're one of the main beneficiaries of these Belt and Road related projects. There's also a real global demand for infrastructure. And so from the perspective of recipient countries, sometimes these look like attractive opportunities. When the projects are done right, there's definitely the possibility for positive spillovers for the broader global economy. But then on the non-economic side of things, and this is where a lot of the sort of deepest anxieties about the Belt and Road are, there are questions about whether there's some strategic motives behind this. Some of that is driven by the fact that a lot of infrastructure ports especially, are dual use. And so a port that's great at accommodating a large cargo ship might also be very good at accommodating military vessels. And so there's, there are questions about ports that don't seem to have a strong economic rationale, whether they might serve some strategic purpose for China in the longer term.
0: There are a number of issues of concern that perhaps stand in the way of the full realization of this initiative. And I guess one of them that raises itself most prominently is that of debt. For years now, there have been whispers and maybe more than whispers about the condition of Chinese banks, about the immense amount of debt that China has been taking on over the years in order to finance not just this, but all of its initiatives all over the world. Might there be a real problem with debt down the line for China that would derail this entire initiative?
1: Yes, I think that's a very valid concern. There's talk about debt trap diplomacy. This is a criticism of China, often made by Western analysts. And the implication is that China is using loans to trap countries in debt, and then it uses that leverage to take strategic assets or to force them to take political positions that align with Beijing's preferences. I think what that critique fails to often recognize is that the risk runs both ways, and China is assuming risks, and especially when it backs projects that are not commercially viable, it assumes both a financial risk as well as a reputational risk. And so I think it's very difficult. We're still pretty early days with Belt and Road, even though it was announced in 2013 in the scheme of infrastructure projects. We're still relatively early days in terms of knowing how much of this initial flurry of activity was actually driven by commercial fundamentals and the right projects were picked. But I find it very plausible that during the next global downturn, we'll know a lot more about what was picked, and whether the right decisions were made. And some of those debt concerns could really come to the surface.
0: Well, it takes two forms, as you point out. One is the debt being imposed on China, and the other is the debt that China is imposing on others. And in terms of the debt trap danger, well, in fact, that's already happened to some extent. It happened in Sri Lanka, did it not? The port there had to be handed over to Chinese companies because they couldn't sustain the cost on their end?
1: Yeah, the port in Hamantota is now being operated by... Chinese companies, and they have a 99-year lease on the port. And that obviously evokes accusations of, you know, colonialism. And what I think the Sri Lanka case also shows is that ultimately, this is a responsibility of recipient countries to make smart decisions and to do their due diligence. That was a port project that was backed, supported by a politician whose home base of support was in that rural area. And so for him, the port has his name on it now, like other infrastructure projects in that area. Uh, And like other infrastructure projects in that area, it was Chinese financed, Chinese built, and now barely used. And so to me, I think sometimes the debt trap Narrative gives China almost too much credit because I think the real driver here was more domestic motive than China's strategic ambition.
0: And yet, China itself can be awfully tone deaf about the way they're coming off to the world. When Xinhua, the Chinese news agency, tweeted out when that port was turned over at Sri Lanka, another milestone along path of hashtag Belt and Road. So that may, might not have been the wisest thing to put out there once that happened, right?
1: Yeah, no, it's in very tone deaf. The port has become a real stain on the reputation of the Belt and Road. It's one of the most well-known cases. And I think it actually has had a deterrent effect on some recipient countries. I mean, this is very difficult to measure objectively, but I think concerns among recipient countries have really increased as they've Seen what's happened in Sri Lanka.
0: I guess one could argue that China is simply doing what the United States and the West did for decades, and that is make key investments around the world that serve the interests not only of those areas, but certainly of the, of the countries that are making the investments. I mean, how is that different from what the U.S. has done all this time?
1: Yeah, there is a very long history of great powers using infrastructure projects to gain access to territory, to gain leverage o- over other countries. And this is a game that Western powers play Played in Africa, in Asia, I mean even in China, and so I think there are many parallels between that set of activities, which was very intense leading up to World War One. There's some pretty big differences too, though. Today there are widely recognized international standards for how projects should be done. That's something that really didn't exist during that period. And the reason those standards do exist is because a lot of those former colonial powers learned their lesson having made really bad decisions. And so they've sort of, they bound themselves, not out of goodwill, but out of self-interest through institutions like the World Bank that are supposed to mitigate risk and protect their individual reputations. So I think China, in a way, when it goes into places like Sri Lanka and back's projects that are very questionable and more politically motivated, I think it's slowly learning the the lessons that some of those Western powers learned. Unfortunately, not fast enough.
0: As reality sets in. Now, in addition to debt, what are some other issues of concern that can lead to pushback from the rest of the world? I know you cite a few of them, the the fear of bias uh, in favor of Chinese contractors, environmental concerns, political corruption. What, What do you think are the big issues out there that might further serve to derail this initiative down the line?
1: Two of the biggest issue sets are corruption and environmental impacts or or risk mitigation in general. So in, in the first set, a lot of these projects are not done with enough transparency. And that's something that China, if it wanted to, really could decide to improve. But it in some ways has designed a system that's opaque. And so corruption is allowed to happen, which allows projects to sometimes get off the ground faster. It also gives Beijing an avenue for political influence. If you can provide support for an incumbent politician in a country that needs infrastructure, that can be a powerful tool. And so I think those incentives contribute to an increase in projects in the short term, but I think to the detriment of the economic fundamentals of those projects in the longer run. So I think we'll start to see more of those costs come to the surface. There have already been several instances of really egregious behavior in Malaysia for example pro- projects were inflated so money could change hands two pipelines were built only 13% or 15% built but 90% of the funding for them was allocated in Central Asia we've had cases of power plants that have failed in the dead of winter because the money was incorrectly allocated and used to pay people off. So I think all of that comes with a a cost. The second set of concerns, part of the appeal of these Belt and Road projects is that China moves quickly. And in moving quickly, it often doesn't do the risk assessments as carefully and thoroughly as the World Bank and others, which you could argue that they have overdone this now and they've become too slow. But in moving fast, China has often, it's been willing to operate with lower environmental or social impact standards. And so you have the risks there of projects that are displacing populations or harming the environment either directly through the construction or through emissions in the case of a lot of coal power plants being built. And so you see China responding to both of these areas of concern, both the corruption and the environmental impacts and a lot of the rhetoric around the Belt and Road at the last Belt and Road Forum, where lots of initiatives were announced that had the word green in them. But unfortunately, those are sort of initiatives that sound nice, but have little to no guarantee that they're actually going to be implemented. So I think a lot of this is still worth continuing to monitor.
0: I imagine a lot of the citizens whose homes were lost in the flooding of the Three Rivers Gorge might take issue with that label. But we were talking about mission creep and as a way of perhaps jeopardizing the BRI because, you know, going to space, going to the Arctic and the like. But on the other hand, might mission creep also serve to move it along by deflecting attention from what's really going on in the ground and just making everybody think, oh, it's this great overall thing and and people aren't paying as much attention to the actual infrastructure things that are going on? Is that a possibility? possibility?
1: One of the benefits of there being no definition for what a Belt and Road project is, is that you get support from a lot of different areas. The challenge, though, is that sometimes that support is just people repackaging whatever they're doing and claiming it's advancing the Belt and Road. And so I, I do think that that rent-seeking behavior is going to have Costs over the longer run. There could be something smart about having such a wide and ever expanding set of activities that it's very difficult to track, in that you could hide things. I could see that a little bit, but. It's a very expensive, wasteful way to operate. And so I have to imagine that there's some real management challenge here. And mm-hmm. it depends on who you talk to, but maybe a little bit of regret about making this something that has just expanded beyond any sort of reasonable definition at this point.
0: At the same time you see the possibility of China itself, China's government losing control of this project, the idea that out of the six corridors that make up the project, in five of them, Chinese investment could actually go elsewhere. There's There's nothing stopping Chinese money from going wherever it wants to go. Is it possible or do you start to see the beginning of a loss of control by China over its own initiative?
1: I think almost from day one, this has been more shaped by various interest groups, both within and outside China. On the ground, especially Chinese state-owned enterprises have been very influential. Their incentives are basically just to build things. And some of them are not that concerned about the long-term viability of the projects, or even whether they serve some greater strategic purpose. And on the ground, they have more expertise than the Chinese officials that are supposed to be supervising them. They have oftentimes more cash to put in the right hands. They have more personnel. And so they're extremely influential. And then, as you mentioned, I think one indicator that the Belt and Road has been a a bit more opportunistic and scattered and even chaotic on the ground is that these corridors that everyone from Xi Jinping on down talks about as if they exist, they really don't. There's just as much activity happening outside the corridors as within them. And if you ask someone to tell you what cities are even in some of these corridors, they can't tell you. To me, that's another suggestion here that on the ground, at least, this has been really more shaped by each project is a negotiation, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the the question of whether it's part of a specific corridor or not is usually not an influential driver.
0: So what must China do now to keep this thing on track or to uh, get it back on track to the extent it's jumped the tracks? I don't know. But what must China do now?
1: I think there could be merit in trying to address some of the real concerns that have been expressed both by countries that participate in the Belt and Road, as as well as those who've been somewhat skeptical of it. And I think transparency is probably at the very top of that list. So providing more information about lending terms around these projects and details about specific agreements, if you go to the World Bank website and you look at a project that the World Bank supports, there's almost too much documentation for each project. It's a problem of having so much information available. It's very difficult to get details on Chinese projects. And so I think greater transparency around those projects would be ultimately beneficial to China in the longer run, certainly beneficial to recipient countries. Providing some guidelines about really what qualifies for this initiative, I think, might be a smart thing to do if they want to really reassert control over the Belt and Road brand. Otherwise, I think, they run the risk of having others define this for them. And also decreasing the sort of annual amounts that are being put into this would be another way to force a a bit more discipline. And that might be happening already.
0: How should the West be reacting other than sitting back and just observers of this whole massive project go forward?
1: So there's been a range of reactions already. And some of it now is tending toward a, a bit more nuanced position. It's not endorsing this or being wholeheartedly against it it's saying we're for infrastructure that meets the following standards and acknowledging that the world does need more infrastructure. So you've seen, I think, efforts both through the G7 and the G20 to define principles around what quality infrastructure is. Those are both positive developments. And then there's been a bit of an effort that's still pretty early and evolving to provide higher quality alternatives to recipient countries as they consider how to meet their infrastructure needs.
0: Well, it's really interesting to see how far the Belt and Road Initiative has come and where it's going and how it might end up. So, uh, Jonathan Hillman, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to brief us on all of the nuances of this massive initiative and where it might go. Thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That was my conversation with Jonathan Hillman of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, talking about China's massive Belt and Road Initiative. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain